Okay, so good morning everybody and uh, welcome back to the Academic Archers Saturday um, Omnibus. It's quite a long session today, so I've got my cup of tea and a lot of cake to help me get through this one. Uh, thank you to everybody that's done a donation as well, it's really appreciated and you will get your super duper badge uh when we can place that order and get it in the post to you so four papers today the usual format paper a bit of a q a and a chat and on to the next one um and uh microphones i've muted you all now if and if you can stay on mute if, obviously if you're not presenting um and uh when if you want to ask a question there's a facility that you can put your hand up um on zoom so do that We'll put a question in the chat and Nicola and I will be looking across both of those two things and we'll try and pick up as much as we can on that. Sometimes the chat gets really busy so it's hard to get everybody's comments and questions in but we will try our hardest as well. The presenters will share their screens with you. Again you don't need to do anything with that it just changes what you can actually see in your little zoom window there um, and so then just please just sort of sit back and relax and listen to our four amazing papers um, today and that is all I need to say in terms of house admin for the morning. Nicola do you want to move over to your amazing introductions please? <laughs> well there we are so after last week's hiatus we've got a double quadruple treat this morning. We are returning to some really vintage papers so the first two are from our second outing in Lincoln and some are from the Susan Fest at the British Library Brackets Borchester Land Conference. The first two papers are available in custard, culverts and cake in all good bookshops. And the second provides some of the meat for gender, sex and gossip. So I thought actually just before we go over to Fiona, who's updated her brilliant paper from the time, I just wanted to give some context about the Ambridge Flood because um, we are going to hear about it on the 13th and 14th next week, but it is, um, it's quite interesting when you start thinking about the flood. So I'll just say a little word about the flood before the paper. So five years ago in March, 2015, a lot of things were a bit different. On a week where the rest of the country had basked in spring sunshine, there was an absolutely biblical cloudburst in Ambridge. Also, another difference was that austerity hadn't quite hollowed out the whole BBC and there was still original website material being produced by Kerry and the, and the producers to support the programme, as everybody keeps on saying, and newbies find the website is years out of date. But at this time, there was actual content being put on, on the website. So, so Kerry wrote, uh, Kerry Davis wrote a chunk about why they went for the floods. I think this is quite interesting. So this is Kerry. It's widely known the archers can mirror topical occurrences on air. Although the programme's recorded in blocks three to six weeks before transmission, don't we all know that now? The agile nature of radio means that we're able to rewrite and re-record scenes on the day. It costs money to do this, of course, and it's disruptive, so we are selective about which events find their way into the programme. Usually no more than a handful of episodes get a topical insert, and there was first a mention of flooding, on the 10th of February, when Ruth reported the latest to David in the lambing shed. But given the unprecedented scale of this emergency, Archer's editor Sean O'Connor, remember him, felt that a few mentions were not going to be enough. Sean O'Connor says, We felt that we had to respond to the anguish that real-life farmers had been going through at the moment, 
and the way in which other farmers are rallying around to help them. So the flood in Ambridge was also tracked in real time on the BBC website and I'll, and I'll put the link up so you can see what's the what. So Fiona, who at the time was a postgraduate research student at Bath, her paper, After the Flood, How Can Ambridge Residents Develop Resilience to Future Flooding, received quite a lot of attention at the time, including a brilliant blog on the Bath website, and I'll put the, um, the link to that as well. And she is going to delight us, having updated that work, with local infrastructure for emergencies, Resilient Ambridge Flood Team Raft Revisited. So over to you, Fiona. Okay, thank you. Um, I, there were some really interesting contacts there. I've, um, Archer's Academics has changed my life. <laughs> <laughs> Partly because of it. I haven't actually been listening for a while. I've missed some of the things about the website not being kept up to date. It was only sort of trying to update this. I realised, where's... Why is there no current content? Why, why is Rob Titchener still on the website? So, um, right, I'm going to share my screen and hopefully make it work. I've got so many screens going that apologies if I get a little lost. Um, I'm off for screen two. Okay, so what I'm trying to do now is hope that what what can you see are you seeing my presentation and i'm seeing my notes yeah okay that's good so if i just move you over from away from my notes okay so local infrastructure for emergencies resilient ambridge flood team revisited so as we've noted i originally presented this in lincoln when i was studying at bath whoops and i've accidentally gone on um, today i'm down in topsham which is near exeter and I wanted to reflect on how resilience has developed nationally, locally, and in Ambridge over the last few years. So it's moving on from flooding to a broader definition of resilience. So following on from Nicola's notes, I am going to take you back to Ambridge um, and, and note that we're in a very different position. So as well as experiencing austerity, we've also been experiencing flooding over this winter. So many, many people have had very direct experience. Even those of us who haven't been directly affected have been very aware of what other people are going through. <laughs> we've, got, we've got a map here. I, I do need details of that map podcast. Okay, and I must stop hovering over buttons. So prior to the, the floods in, the, in Ambridge and the floods elsewhere the year before, floods had generally been very localised and there was limited attention paid to them beyond the region where they happened. And people tend to forget floods very quickly. So even the 2007 floods, which were epic, have been largely forgotten by those who aren't still trying to put their lives back together. And it can even happen within a flood event. So whilst Somerset and Devon were getting a lot of political attention bits of yorkshire were left to struggle alone because presumably they didn't have um they didn't have mps with the ear of authority um in order to get them down in their wellies to stand in picturesque puddles so as academics i've got some timing on this i'm gonna to have to hurry up aren't i um, <laughs> i didn't manage to take that bit off i've re-edited this so much as things have changed so academics were aware of flood events that were increasing. Um, so 
they're looking to predict vulnerability. <coughs> Engineers and environmental scientists have been designing measures to prevent damage. Responders have been planning strategies to protect the public and communities have been urged to prepare. So it's a hierarchy of resilience responses and quite a lot of delegation down to a fairly low level. So at the highest level of, of this hierarchy, what we're trying to do is to predict the likelihood, the location and the severity of flooding. Um, so this is, this is Bristol from, from where I used to live, the rainbow over the Clifton Suspension Bridge and the Plimsoll Bridge. The mayor of Bristol is looking to build houses there, which is not great. Um, this one is, is looking at the context in the UK, number of properties are greater than one in 75 risk of flooding, and we continue to build um, in places that are at risk. So if we can understand the areas most vulnerable to flood events and the depth of water anticipated, that can inform decisions on local development and investment in flood protection. And we can zoom right in, um, for example, um, to individual communities like Ambridge, and on in down to particular properties such as the Dower House, which was so badly affected in the Ambridge flood in 2015. So we've got various measures at our disposal so we can um, prevent through using natural defences, things like the herbal lays and soil structure, the woods and the ponds, or we can build defences like flood walls and culverts. Right. Um, Okay, it's still on automatic timings. Right, so we're looking to, to make changes to the watercourses, directing the flow and increasing capacity. So part of the Ambridge tragedy was that this was done by Rob Titchener um, in blocking the culvert, um, and that diverted water down into the village of Ambridge, which is one of the reasons we know he was a complete bastard. Um, so what can we do? Um, Given that there are many robs in this world, um, we need to take personal responsibility and protect our own properties. And that can be done in a similar way by excluding or diverting water, either as permanent feature or as things that we do in response to flood warnings. And the growth of flood warnings and the massively important role of local radio and the BBC in this is, can't be emphasised enough. So by recording the flood impacts, we're, we also get useful information, um, not just in the emergency to identify people, but also for, for the longer term as we move from rescue to recovery. Where are the properties that need um, uh, revi um, revisiting and how do we prepare those communities for future events? So we can identify flood wardens, we can invest in barriers and pumps, and we can use those in the community. Um, so evacuation plans are also important working out where people can go and again some of those facilities I haven't seen a reworking at the moment as to where we go so the emphasis as I mentioned earlier has been really pushed down to the lowest level down to community volunteering and whilst Ambridge hasn't formed a resilient Ambridge flood team there is a Topsham emergency group. <laughs> okay, so I, I am living in this supposedly resilient community, um, but I don't know where I'm supposed to go with it fast during a pandemic. So, so what happened next? So shortly after this, um, 
Avon launched, Avon Fire and Rescue launched SARAID Community Resilience Team. So having berated people in April 2020 in, um, in Lincoln that they should form the, Rambridge, the Resilient Ambridge Flood Team, um, I couldn't not sign up. So, so I ended up volunteering and doing night patrols along the river in Bath. And managed to get on TV to the horror of my PhD supervisor. <laughs> he said, you're supposed to be writing. You're not supposed to be spending nights out rescuing people from rivers. Um, even though I'm writing about flood resilience. So he was not very impressed. It was the night of the Star Wars launch. And I did point out I could have gone and watched all the Star Wars films instead. And he would never have known. <laughs> so, so I've car carried on with the research and getting deeper into the material. So this picture is nanostructure of cement. <laughs> this is the level the flood resilience is going down to. So we're really trying to re-engineer the materials so that they actually don't flood. But both of these are on the back burner because I'm now a lecturer at University of Exeter. And these are the, the top picture is some of my other rather daft scholarship, um, inviting a doll to shadow me for a week as I found my way around the university. Um, she gets, she went to get, got to go to a conference as well. I might get another one if I manage to make it back to a physical conference. Um, and this is my usual commute to work, which has been flooded for much of, it was, it was almost continuously flooded until we went to lockdown. And I'm now working at home from a laptop that was sized to facilitate my commute, which is not great. Okay, so we then go into, into risk assessment. So we're back into how does this all fit together? So this is developed from some of the things I learned through the community residence team as well as some of the things I've been incorporating into my literature review on flood resilience. So the important thing to note is that in 2004, the UK had a Civil Contingencies Act. So the UK passed that just three years after 9-11, which is one of the reasons that we're, we're actually seen as um, being at the forefront of resilience planning and response. Um, we were, Singapore followed what we said we would do and actually did it. So four years after the Civil Contingencies Act, we get the National Risk Register, but it's evident that the government were already using their risk assessments to inform response. So there are two big yellow diamonds on the screen, um, both of which relate to foot and mouth. We probably remember the, the 2001 foot and mouth outbreak, break, which did reach Ambridge, um, but the 2007 one may have passed you by, and part of that was because the lessons learnt through the risk assessment were put into practice, and it was very quickly brought under control. So the pattern over the last few years has been that the National Risk Register has been updated about every couple of years, and I, I actually did this graph for a lecture to my, to my students when I realised it hasn't been updated recently. So we've gone into um, 2020 with an out-of-date risk register. But what emerged the night before I was supposed to give this last week was that there is actually a 2019 National Risk Assessment, which was very focused on pandemic planning. Um, it just hasn't made it through to the public yet. And there's a suggestion that the politicians most in need of its um, advice 
have maybe not read the relevant chapters. So one of the things that is set up with the National Risk Registers is they cascade community risk registers developed by a local risk forum. So this is the point at which we can cascade our way back down to Ambridge, our beloved county, and understand how resilience planning um, is, is happening in, in Ambridge and the surrounding area. So the local risk forums are based on the police force boundaries, which means that Borsetshire has a dedicated forum liaising with the adjacent areas of West Mercia and Warwickshire, as far as I can establish. So the police force, um, Borsetshire police force, are known as a category one responder. So category one responders are right at the heart of the response, along with the local authorities, fire and rescue service, acute trust and ambulance service. And Borsetshire is really fortunate to have dedicated provision with coincident boundaries for all of these organisations. However, it has reported difficulty in getting some of the other agencies, Public Health England, Environment Agency and British Transport Police, to identify the relevant region. So again, they're having to coordinate at a local level. And the Category 1 responders work together as Be Prepared. So this, of course, is the Borsetshire Emergency Preparedness um, Programme, which you should all be aware of if you are local to the area. So they develop the local risk register and coordinate the response during an emergency. So the Category 2 responders may be required to support rescue relief or recovery from particular types of incident. Now, again, it's been quite difficult to track down the local utilities for Borsitcher, but I'm fairly confident that they fall within Seven Trent Water, um, although, unfortunately, the, the county seems to be completely absent from their map, which is a, a definite oversight, and a range of other national infrastructure agencies. So it's worth noting that despite its unique position, Be Prepared is not the only local resilience forum that's having problems identifying the specific organisations responsible for their geographical area. Um, it's been mentioned in regard to Public Health England that, again, how do you control a public health emergency when your public health has got very divided responsibilities between an England-wide organisation and local authorities, some of which are unitary and some of which are combined, and it's a complete mess. Um, but you've also got issues like the Environment Agency divides itself up by river catchments, which is very, low, very logical if you're responding to flooding. Emergency services use varying groups of counties, um, the counties themselves being derived from the 1972 boundary review and the groupings to do with austerity. So the whole of Scotland is now one police force, but then that's not in England. So it's got another set of roles and even the definition of nation, different documents. Some use it for England, some use it for Britain, some use it for UK. So we've got a real we've got a real mapping problem here. Actually, we really need better maps. <laughs> So an essential part of drawing up the local risk register is understanding the profile of the area. Again, go to the maps. So for Borsitshire, as in neighbouring West Mercia, there are contrasts between rural and urban areas. So I'm going to start with the rural area and presume that Ambridge is fairly typical of rural villages because it's the one I know best. 
And again, these are things that have been identified in West Mercia as well. So we've got a higher than average older population. We've got a strong agricultural base. Um, we've got some great local tourism. Um, who can forget the thrill of riding on the Blackberry line, um, especially when you've had to sneak out in order to take your son to it. Um, Lower Loxley, the golf courses, the country parks, we've got this amazing tourist, inf inf tourist facility, but our transport infrastructure is very limited with poor connections to national networks and infrequent bus services on our rural roads. Okay, um, that poor connectivity can also be a problem um, when it meets um, local weather systems. So Borsetshire is renowned for its highly localised weather system and the rivers do respond very rapidly to rainfall, um, faster than radio waves. Um, the consequence of a prolonged torrential rain in a flashy catchment um, is typified by what happened in Boscastle in 2004, which was caused by a very heavy storm that sat up upstream of Boscastle and caused devastating flooding, though thank goodness not any loss of life. Um, I discovered yesterday that um, the 2007 floods, again, there were, there were very few drowning incidents in 2007, but there were a number of electrocutions as people switched back on. Um, so if you are flooded, please use non-mains electricity for catching the arches at, at just after seven during the flood event. So the population density is low in rural areas, but you can also get large concentrations of people at special events. So we all remember the chaos of Loxfest, only saved at the last minute by the Pet Shop Boys. Um, and I'm losing my words, it's flipping, I'm afraid. Um, and also the centres of towns and the cathedral city of Felpsham has much higher population densities. So the narrow streets of the cathedral quarter of Felpsham are legendary and the local stone is ideal as a building material. Um, this is also part of the reason why the city's narrow streets survived the devastating fires in the 17th century as urban centres grew and many cities lost their equivalent streets to fire damage. However, this stone with its low permeability is also one of the things that contributes to our higher than average flood risk. The University of Felpsham, again, we will have the conference there one year. Perhaps this is the Felpsham University run of the, the Ambridge um, Archers academics. Um, the university has been looking to move into the ranks of the Russell Group, hasn't yet achieved that, but I did notice that it has a very creditable 24th in 1KT's world ranking of fictional universities, which puts them only a couple of places behind the unseen university. Um, the campus is, of course, on an elevated position close to the A9110, so that's the, the road to the north of Felpsham and is well above the aqueduct carrying the Felpsham Canal over the River Mercer. And that canal in itself is just part of Felpsham's industrial heritage, allowing bricks and woolen cloth to be transported into Birmingham beyond. So really, who couldn't love Borsitcher? So with this profile in mind, we can use the National Register and the local likelihood to identify the top risks for our community and develop our response. So top risk 
um, in Borsitshire as well as West Mercia is a global pandemic, which is being predicted as a problem since Malthus, with recent attention focusing on influenza-type disease. Borsitshire's older population and their dependence on rural transport networks for access to health and social care makes this a very significant threat. Whilst Borsitshire escaped significant problems this spring, um, work is continuing to improve flood modelling and support community and personal preparedness for flooding and severe weather. So the lack of resilience on rural roads exacerbates these risks. So, for example, in I think it was Tewkesbury in 2007, they had provision of temporary barriers, but they got stuck the other side of the flooding. They couldn't get them along the rural road network to deploy them. So with these flooding and severe weather concerns, any village fake committee would be well advised to have contingency plans in place for both heat waves and thunderstorms. Similarly, environmental pollution as an agricultural county, we tend to think that industrial um, risks are low, but we must remember that agricultural runoff can also cause significant problems. And that applies to sediments and slurry washed off fields, which disrupt fluvial ecosystems, even where there is adequate control of substances hazardous to health. Animal diseases are predicted to have a less severe impact overall, but again, with our dependence on agricultural employment, they may have a significant economic um, loss and lead to unemployment in areas of the county. This is a particular risk um, if an outbreak, outbreak affects a village containing several farms whose owners and workers routinely visit the same village pub or share lemon drizzle cake. So four of the top risks from the local register have been experienced in Ambridge in the five-year planning cycle. Um, though there are concerns that lessons from the flooding have not been learned. So, for example, we didn't see evidence of planning in property level protection measures for the new homes that Ed and Emma were eventually unable to afford. So with severe weather potentially disastrous for farm finances, there has actually been a move to mitigate risks. So we're seeing a move towards more sustainable agriculture, for example, tree planting, resilient crop cycles and spring carving, which are all mitigating measures. But risk reduction requires conscientious management too. Brian Aldridge's past carelessness led to contamination of the River Am. And has Pip really been forgiven for her failure to mend a fence that may have been the route for infectious bovine rhinotracheitis to reach Brookfield Farm? So returning to the National Risk Register, we can get context for some other incidents. So the explosion at Grey Gables, flapjack flinging, and possibly the involvement of organised crime syndicates in county lines and modern slavery. So a structured national and local approach to risk response and preparedness is helpful to avoid the distraction of planning for implausible events, such as coastal flooding in landlocked counties, including Borsetshire. It's a high risk here for me down in Topsham, but it's very unlikely to affect Ambridge. Or is it impossible for it to affect language? However, there may be events that are unanticipated or unprecedented, 
And these are sometimes called black swan events. These are Topsham's beautiful black swans who are a regular feature of my um, resilience lockdown walks. And these black swan events were, predict were seen to be impossible right back into Roman times um, and right through until the Europeans reached Australia and said, oh my goodness, you can get black swans. So the term is applied to um, events that were considered impossible but are, do actually happen. So we need to provide robust systems that can be deployed as required, even when we get unanticipated events. And we must also ask about aspects of resilience that have not yet been tested at scale. And this begs a real question, just how prepared is Ambridge for a pandemic? So we won't know unless and until a pandemic reaches Borsetshire. So in the meantime, I can only reiterate the preparedness advice that comes naturally to all of us as Archer's academics. Go in, stay in, tune in. Thank you. Uh, I've got to Thank get back. Thank you so much for that, Fiona. That was brilliant. And um, you won't have seen, but the chat was hilarious. <laughs> I've the giggles because you come up with the most brilliant innuendo of flashy catchments. Um, and I kind of made myself laugh at my own innuendo joke there, which is very bad form. But there was a lot of love for your pics of the heron and the black swans. But then the chat also went down a whole rabbit warren of Tom on Pornhub. Um, so you'll need to go back to the chat to get... Uh, uh, to get an idea of that. I will just stop the screen sharing now. Oh, great. Yeah, I was struggling to do that. Oh, and I've lost... Oh, no, I've got full screen. Right. <laughs> oh, dear. Any questions from anybody? <laughs> well, there's a lot of lovely your paper here. It was brilliant. <laughs> I was trying to work out how to do a poll as well, but it's just... Uh, <laughs> Maybe on Twitter. <laughs> I don't. I personally don't think Ambridge probably would survive the flood, uh, only for the drama. Yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to the next. The next, the live episode is actually going to be on my fiftieth birthday, so I'm really looking forward to it because it's about the only way I'm going to be able to celebrate everything else. The plan to go windsurfing and do fifty park runs before my birthday have just disappeared. <laughs> I was like they almost planned it. Fantastic. There was the trusty map. The map has come up a lot in your conversation. It was also here. So this is this is the map that I've got, which I think most is kind of standard one. And um, we had uh, Chris Perkins in um, Are My Frozen. Oh, there we go on the back. Yeah, Chris Perkins in the very first Academic Arches did a, a paper on mapping Ambridge. Yeah, I think I used some of his papers to, to develop mine as I yeah, was trying to understand the rather peculiar characteristics <laughs> of the catchment. Yeah, he did point out that, you know, the river had, had gone from the north of the village to the south in the course of 50 years. And this is a geographical phenomenon that really did need some attention to it. But it, it is, the realignment of rivers is, again, one of the big points. So coastal erosion obviously isn't going to affect Borsetshire but one of the big political issues is how we actually um, defend and protect property when rivers move that that's how rivers work so do you make people who lose their land to the river or the sea 
just take the hit and everybody else is fine? Or do you actually share that risk through some political or insurance mechanism? Karen Pollock um, has a question. Fiona, how much is demographics included in resilience planning? Just because of the data um, about how much income is impacting people now as well. Yeah. It, what, what I'm finding really difficult is that when I was most looking at this in 2017, it was still fairly functional. And one of the things that I am really quite concerned about is the fact that we haven't seen the role of local resilience forums. We haven't seen, we haven't seen engagement in things like the COBRA meetings, which are where this high level planning goes on. So the information is there, but it's about using, setting up and using structures that allow the information to reach the decision makers. And it's that gap between information decision makers. So in Ambridge, we've got some wonderful script writers and we know how much they draw in the information. They don't, they don't get everything, but they do match things up other than the occasional wandering river. So demographics are really important. And again, it, it's one of the reasons you're getting very, that there's the demographics. And again, there's issues emerging in the pandemics around the ethnicity of of exposure and response. That so picks up on the question that Claire Mortimer had as well. Um, if you were to script the COVID storylines, what would you have happen? I mean, I've got a list of who's going to die personally. <laughs> oh, I, I think part of the problem is that we're, we, we will be taking, it will be, it, we, we will be taking, it will be going into people's kitchens. And one of the things that I don't know how you're finding your work-related messages, but I'm getting a whole host of people saying, um, I hope you're. I hope you're well. I hope you enjoyed your weekend. And it really doesn't help. So we went into lockdown. We, this this sounds daft. We we were lucky. We managed to get a funeral in the week before lockdown. So we've gone into lockdown straight from a funeral, and we're negotiating things like probate whilst mm. whilst whilst still in lockdown and unable to meet up with. Um, with with my brother and sister in law in order to to navigate it and you yeah one of the one of the reasons I'm disengaged from Ambridge is that um, Helen's issues came right into my kitchen and I couldn't cope with them so well I could I, I could until the point where it all went disastrously wrong and deviated from my own escape so um I'm very aware that it's going to have to be something that supports us all in the pandemic. However they play the story out, it is going to have to be very, very sensitively handled. Mm -hmm. So I think some of the papers I've particularly enjoyed at previous conferences have been things around how we deal with pets and bereavement and so on in Enbridge. And that there's so much scope to support people if they get the scripting at an excellent level. And yeah, I mean, I'm serious. Now, I, I would love to be a fly on the wall to those conversations that they must be having now about how they mirror our national experience in this, but then also mm -hmm. help us through it too as well. Nicola, you wanted to say something, and then I think we should move on to the next. Yeah, question. just just the sort of local government nerd end of things. Because I've <laughs> obviously been doing the economic recovery planning for after the the pandemic, and it's horrific, obviously. But I've also um, that what you, your reflection is so right that the local resilience forums were sort of holding together till about four or five years ago but then 
um, the ones that have been used for flooding are actually much better prepared. So Cumbria and North Yorkshire in the north, for example, um, because they've been activated for floods, they're then fit for purpose for disease. So that's why I really liked your chart. But in most places, the Local Resilience Forum have got a website from 2004 that lists the first responders and the second gang. It's really quite horrific. Yeah, and so a lot of the links are broken is what I've been finding. So again, this was the, the, that chart was part of a student exercise, getting them prepared for lockdown, mm. assessing their home working status and checking their local resilience things. And I was really quite upset when I realised how, how much of the network had been discarded basically yeah, totally. it, it, and what's what i found interesting about that is obviously we are local government nerds as is <laughs> but it's not a well-told story so i was trying to um so that most of the local resilience forums that do meet have got a they call it a berg business engagement resilience risk and something response or something and they're often led by the economic development people and in some places those still do function but it's like the it's like an appendage of the resilience forum is working because of kind of local leadership not because mm -hmm. and also about the civil contingencies act that 2004 legislation it used to be that of course you had a whole partnership paraphernalia at the local level or strategic partnership and hanging off that and that made sense right because then you've got all your blue light responders are anyway strategically connected to everybody else and i'm writing a piece i've got I'm writing two pieces about about um the effect of the pandemic on on um provision of public services and one is about how the lockdown means that you spend all your social capital you can't really renew it even in zoom you don't meet new people or make new connections you're, you're spending social capital rather than renewing it. That's the one thing. And the other is that, you know, it, we got, it became so unfashionable to do partnership working well. At, well, it was destroyed essentially by the coalition government coming in. And the things that you describe are, you know, it sh there should be the ingredients that are in the mix for good governance, let alone it's mm. in a bad situation. And um, this is going to come out, this will all come out, that we, that we are woefully ill-prepared. I think we've learned something in this, though, that we all need to get wind-up radios so that no matter what happens, we can still listen to the arches. Because the BBC will, they will broadcast something for us, no matter how yeah. long it goes on for. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the other thing is we've got, we, we do have to fight for the BBC because however however they go off track in, in scripting the archers or, or other aspects of their provision they are right at the heart of resilience response in being able to broadcast when everything else goes down and we have to fight for them because we don't want adverts in the middle of a flood warning yeah. Yeah. Uh, good oh um so it, somebody put their thumb up was that just to say brilliant or is, that, is it because they had a question ah oh, laura good oh now um, um 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 i think we're running a little bit over unless fiona's got anything else that she wants to say we're done on that Mwah, thank you so much darling and actually fiona I don't, I don't want to give anything away but fiona wrote us an email after the lincoln conference about her own journey and how the stories had resonated 
which made both Cora and I cry for a whole evening. So, so thank you for that. Right. Um, I am coming back to introduce the award-winning paper and acclaimed published authors Annie Madison Warren and Rachel Daniels are returning to their first academic culture paper, also from Lincoln, presented in the panel on genteel country hobbies. Annie Madison Warren is a lecturer at Cranfield and she uses her work on critical success factors in major government IT projects uh, applied to the egregious cheating that goes on at the Flower and Produce show. Annie and Rachel won the best poster we have ever seen award. It's never been topped by anybody uh, with a big, enormous, sticky-outy parsnip at the Lincoln Conference, and we awarded them uh, a parsnip as a result. I pass you over to Annie and Rachel. Thank you very much, Nicola. I hope everybody can hear me. I'm kicking off. We're going to do some fancy footwork with screen sharing as we go. I hope we hope. <laughs> so, let me see if I can get this up and running. So the first thing I should say is that unlike the noble Fiona Gleed, we are too lazy to have updated our presentation to yours, but with a repeat of what we did at Lincoln. Um, so we decided we'd look at flower and produce shows. So Rachel and I have always been intrigued by the goings-on at the Ambridge Flower and Produce Show. And you might think, why? Have they got nothing better to do with their time? But we can defend this. It's an annual event. It's a critical part of the Ambridge calendar. And over the years, it's brought a wealth of scandal, rivalry, misunderstanding, suspicion. And you have to ask yourself, how can it be that a charming community-based celebration of personal endeavor in horticultural and crafts has such a dark and negative underbelly? And it also makes you wonder if the Ambridge show is representative of produce shows in other places. So all of that was milling on in the background. And then I have my own experience. We live in a small market town, which has an annual produce show in September each year. And in 2014, my husband was invited, no less, by a committee member to enter a loaf of his bread. So we went along early on the Saturday of the show to make the entry and I walked into that hall, looked around at what was on display and thought, and that's really embarrassing, isn't it? And even more disturbing was the fact that I didn't just think it. I got in the car, I went home, I dived into the daily bread, I, bed, I raided the pantry, um, raced back before entries closed and I got a first for my dahlias in a vase. Uh, second for my plum jam, my husband got a third for his bread. And, you know, just as an aside, the indignity of that lives with him to this day. He's never entered again. And if you mention it, he, his face takes on a very peeved expression. But the main thing is, what had happened to me when I walked into that hall? What fired me up to want to compete in every aspect of that show and to win? Why did it matter how my dahlias were ranked? 
And obviously this called out for some proper, rigorous, scientific research. So we set to, we were interested in the competitive nature of these events, but particularly that issue about when it tips over into negative, unethical behavior, or even better, cheating. So we started off by looking at the literature, and obviously there's loads out there on competition and um, cheating, lots of studies of sport, school, the workplace, but oddly enough, absolutely nothing about flower and produce shows. So we were filling, a, a gap in the literature was screaming out to be filled. So search through the literature, three key factors for why we as humans compete. Um, and then having identified what makes us compete and potentially what makes us cheat, we examined what goes on in Ambridge at the Flower and Produce Show and we categorised ultra competitive or negative behaviour. And having got those categories, we then went to talk to um, judges, uh, committee members and competitors at our local show to, to see how the experience is compared. So why we compete? Well, we like to compete. It's in our nature, survival of the fittest and all that. Uh, we don't need major reward or gain in order to be competitive. We're quite happy with a certificate, still up on the board behind me, the red one. Um, we like to be ranked to see how we figure in relation to others, really to see if we're the best. And in competing in this way, we don't necessarily stick to the rules. We play the system. What do the rules say? What do they not explicitly say? And then we stretch them as far as we can. And at the same time, we may also stretch our personal definition of cheating in order to succeed. We like to be successful. We like to achieve goals. Setting goals, such as 100,000 tests, helps us to improve our performance. And achieving our goals, 100,000 tests, demonstrates our competence and worth to ourselves and others. This ranking in relation to others is explained by social comparison theory, with competition and competitiveness being one form of our need to improve our performance and to be better than others. So the three things we got out of that, three factors about why we compete, this inner drive to succeed, the importance of having achievement goals, and this urge to compare and be compared with others. What about the negative aspects? I talked about stretching the rules, stretching our definitions of cheating, and this can result in us behaving in undesirable or prohibited ways. Competition often leads to good people acting in bad ways. And that's because of the social comparison um, ranking and wanting to win, wanting to be the one to produce the heaviest apple or the most obscene carrot. But there's a thin line between stretching the rules a bit to enable success and cheating. Cheating is an attempt to gain unfair advantage by violating the shared interpretation of the basic rules, the ethos. But interestingly, it's not just about material gain, it's also about psychological factors, emotional satisfaction, making ourselves feel better about who we are. However, the point at the end of that screen, we must note that unintentional 
or unknowing rule breaking is not cheating. You've got to be aware that you're playing the system in order to fully qualify as a cheat. So that was what the literature told us. And then we moved on to look at flower and produce shows in Ambridge over the years to see what kind of competitive and negative behavior we could identify. And the first thing that came up was strategic planning. So this is where competitors think about their campaign, work out their approach up to 12 months in advance, if not more. As soon as one produce show is over, they're getting ready for the next. And the example from the archers is 1985, Prue Forrest neglecting to feed her husband, Tom, in her bid for overall winner. He became the subject of village gossip and snide jaunts at the pub, poor Tom. Mishaps, unlucky accidents, and who can forget Chutney Gate in 2016? Um, this incident was reported in the Daily Express and they, they described it as embroiling Ambridge. Jill was initially awarded the Frieda Fry Memorial Award, even had photos taken for the Borchester Echo, but there'd been a mix-up. And the Daily Express quotes her as saying that, Carol Tregoran and I had both made chutney and she'd had some of my jam jars and Toby Fairbrother was careless and I got them in a muggle. So as ever, you know, the, the culprit is a fair brother. And thank God Jill is exonerated because my world would end if Jill was found guilty of cheating. Chutney Gate, mishaps. Moving on to questionable judging. In 1994, Will Grundy won the best onion, putting out Tom Forrest to quite a degree. And the main issue here was it was a French judge, what can we say? Um, didn't know what he was talking about. He was a butcher. What would he know about onions? Disqualifications. We've got a whole list of these. Um, Clary and her green gauges. Linda and her photographs. Rather contentious. Jim and his illicit use of um, twine. Twine actually can be quite acceptable at a produce show, you know, to make your onions look neater. And actually, outrageously, Bert Fry had twined his onions at this competition. I think the main thing about this list of disqualifications is who would dare disqualify Linda Snell? Cheating, suspected and possibly premeditated. Um, Laura Archer thought that Doris had used a jar of lemon curd that she had in fact herself given to her and she got her first prize for it. And that would cause a niggle or two, I would say. In 1982, Walter accused, Walter Gabriel accused Prue Forrest of using products from the WI in the homemade jams category. But you know, in the meantime, he himself had injected his marrow and it exploded. So his marrow should surely have tested positive for a banned substance. I've got a book on this, I'll just read you a bit. Dan Archer was suspicious when he came to view the monster specimen in August 1982. I'll have to hand it to you, Walter. I reckon that's the biggest marrow I've ever seen. You've been feeding it, haven't you? Slight pause. How do you know? I can still see the needle mark in the stem. You've twisted it off on the wrong side. But later on, Tom Forrest comes on a tour of inspection. How much does it weigh? Give it here. Gently, gently, hold your arms up. 
soft explosion as of someone throwing up into a bowl of Rice Krispies. It had exploded and it had exploded because he'd been injecting it with sugar and once the marrow was off the plant that fermented, the skin became brittle, the flesh rotted, gas built up inside and your marrow explodes. Crime never pays. 2008, Jill suspected that Sabrina Thwaite had used her fruit cake, which they'd had a cake swap and Sabrina got Jill's cake. But being a noble archer, she decided to let her win, as you would expect. And then inadvertent cheating. I've already mentioned um, Jim Lloyd and his illicit twine. So he was disqualified, dodgy judging, there's all sorts of issues around this, but nothing in the rules probably to say you can't use twine. And so he used twine. Similarly, 2012, Jazza, a surprise entry in the men only bread making, had no idea you couldn't use a bread maker. Probably not stated in the rules, but just generally accepted that that's not what you do. And actually, we missed one on here. 1978, organising committee member and winner of the overall prize, Jean Harvey, was disqualified for using a professional gardener. And then the real McCoy, opportunistic cheating in 2007. Um, a fortuitous evacuation of the village hall due to a burst water pipe. Fiona might want to look into that issue if she's about her business. Um, and Bert reckoned that Derek Fletcher swapped the labels on the runner beans. Now, just kind of adding to this, Phil Archer then swaps the labels back, assuming that Bert is telling the truth. And there are all sorts of issues around here. And, you know, Phil's slightly swaying on his pedestal for me there because I'm not really sure that that was action that he should have taken. So, Ambridge Farm Projects show a whole range of issues going on and a mechanism for categorising them. So off we went then to our local produce show to find out if we could find similar examples of competitiveness and negative behaviour. I've got to try and hand over to Rachel now. Okay, okay. let's try and make this as seamless as possible. <laughs> Here we go. Hopefully, this should be appearing on your screen very soon. I think it just takes a few seconds. Ooh. Try that again. There we go. Okay. Um, so we started by setting up an, an in-depth set of interviews and committee members of our local produce show. And this was a mix of male and female. The age ranges were between 30s and 60s. Um, one interviewee was also answering on behalf of her children, who by that stage were veteran competitors themselves. So what we were interested to know from them was why they took part, what was it that was driving them to, to, to do this madness, what they thought about the rules, how they felt about their success and failure, if indeed they'd had any, their approach to competing, and what we really wanted to know about was whether they'd ever been kind of tempted to cheat themselves or if they'd ever suspected anybody else of bad behaviour. Now, the first person that we interviewed clearly stated to us at the start that I am not competitive, I just love gardening. But it transpired that after some success in the show, he had actually had his own business card 
printed. Now, obviously, we've, we've restricted the details to protect the innocent. Um, he proudly handed this to us at the end of the interview. And that, that kind of gave us some really good dirt on people. Um, so what did our group have to tell us? Let's look at the three themes that came out of the uh, literature on why people compete. So there was a great deal of evidence on this inner drive to succeed um, and, and also to, uh, to fulfill their full potential and know that they've done their best. And our grower of big vegetables here moved house. I don't know if that was significant, whether that was on purpose, but the first thing he claimed he did was to dig up half the garden so that he could improve his soil and um, be much more competitive within the show. achievement goals yeah also much evidence that people wanted to really keep on improving year on year now, every single person that we spoke to talked about community they used that word very often now we never used this term ourselves in the interviews but they all had a very strong sense of community um, contributing to a successful social events in their town and that really was the, the key reason their key motivator for becoming involved in the first place um, and also sticking with that event as well everyone loves competing and winning but the victory is so much sweeter when you're competing against people that you know. <laughs> um, and there's also what we now call the Annie factor of people going to the show, seeing what other people have done and thinking, yeah, I could do that. Or more specifically, yes, I could do that better. One of the interesting things that came out of the interviews was there's the inner belief. So believing that you can do things yourself is, is not... Um, it's not enough in itself. There's this real desire to get validation from other people. So to be seen to have won, of people acknowledge your achievements, um, and more specifically, having a certificate to prove it. So everybody that we spoke to had kept their certificates. Not everybody still displays them like Annie on the notice board, but they'd all kept their certificates. And one of them in his work folder, apparently. Um, now, for most of the interviews, I think it's fair to say, and, and Annie can... and, and back me up on this we were in fits of laughter when we were um listening to the recordings and doing the transcript but there was one very poignant moment which i'll never forget really that, that one of the ladies in our group told us that her mum had always unfavorably compared her to her sister um and thought she had no culinary talent whatsoever um and unfortunately her mum had passed away before she started competing at the local show but she did enter and uh, and eventually she got to a point where she won and and every time that she got a certificate she always there's this little voice in the back of her head that said ha mum you were wrong now one of the most fascinating points for me to come out of the interviews and, and Anne has touched on this already is that there's definitely a distinction between written published rules and the unwritten expectations of the judges which we came to call the etiquette of the competition um, and first timers can be a, a little bit of a disadvantage because they don't know what that etiquette is and the only way that they can find that out is by looking at what the judges have given prizes to and, and sort of judging it and comparing it against their own and, and, and trying to work out why these people have been successful and they haven't. Um, the other thing interesting that we found out is it, particularly where vegetables concerned is it's not always size that's important that's that's not always what they're looking for they're looking for conformity and uh and, and consistency um so maybe we, we should have renamed our paper um something like that but 
you know, three onions placed on a board tied with twine looking consistent against your three onions tied on a board doesn't really have quite the same ring to it. So, <laughs> so we asked them to think about how they felt about failure. And, and everyone had been through this, this process because uh, unlike Annie, not everyone had been massively successful the first time they'd, they'd gone into something. Um, and it's true to say that nobody was scarred for life. Um, some people did get a bit of teasing from their family, um, but actually this often sort of spurred them on to, to try better. Um, unlike Annie's husband, they, they actually <laughs> wanted to, to, to continue with it. And I think it's also fair to say that some people didn't feel that they'd done badly as such, but they just felt that maybe they hadn't followed the rules properly or more specifically, maybe hadn't understood the etiquette. And that's what drove them on uh, to compete again. So what was success like? Well, it's great to win uh, and it's great to win against people that you know, but it's more important again to win against lots of people. So the number of people against who you're judged does make a difference to, the, to their feelings of achievement. The other thing that, that transpired is that everyone we spoke to um, had entered multiple categories. They didn't just go in for one thing and they often had a particular favorite category that they especially wanted to, to be successful in. Um, in our group, I think it was sort of flower ranging and, and the onions came up quite a lot. So let's have a look now at how our group matched up to the types of behavior that we've observed happening in the arches. So there was a definite evidence of strategic planning. And this lady here, really, just like the Archer scriptwriter, she's, she's playing the long game. She's going throughout the whole year and working out which of her products are going to have the, the best chance of beating specific people. Um, now, to be fair, we don't know whether this lady's husband suffered as much as Tom Forrest did. Uh, we didn't get a chance to speak to him, but I, I suspect he was probably too weak to, to come to the phone. So here's another example of strategic planning. This is in the, as you can probably tell, this is in the children's categories. Um, this seems like an awful lot of, of work that he's done. And I wouldn't say it's necessarily negative aspects, but he's managed to win overall because he entered every single thing that was going. Now, I should warn you, we're, we're heading into a darker place now. So just brace yourselves. This, this doesn't have an age restriction on it, but we're, 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 going, we're going to a bad place now. Uh, I think this is possibly my favourite story of, of, the, of the examples that we were given because um, it's all kinds of wrong, really. Um, picture the scene. It's Jubilee year. A child has done what I think is, is more than a passable depiction of Her Majesty. These are actual photos, by the way. Um, but however, at some point during the proceedings, between leaving the entry in the village hall and the judging process, the crown has become detached from the royal head. Now, it could have been an accident. It could have been an act of high treason. We'll never really know. Um, but I know that the competitor's mother will always wonder about this. And actually, the funniest thing is that since that incident, they have never left their entries until the last moment. <laughs> So, so it can't happen again. Oh, this is the story that really winds me up terribly because um, we have to be aware that inappropriate behaviour is it's not just from the competitors, it can be from the judges as well. Um, and this is uh, another example really of maybe where etiquette comes into play rather than the, the rules because this was a, a category of edible jewellery and this was marked down for being unhealthy. I know it's criminal, it's absolutely criminal. Um, but this was the only entry in that category that was fully edible. So I, the righteous indignation at that one, terrible.
Now, disqualification has to be said is really the only area that, that, that came out that really does depart between fact and fiction. So we've seen, and it told us a lot about disqualifications in the arches, and it does make a great storyline. But as far as our local flower and produce show goes, nobody in the history of the competition has ever been disqualified. Um, and obviously we've, we've talked about the fact that it's a, a social event and they, the committee members do not want to dissuade anyone from entering. It's not to put people off. So it's trying to make it as, as social and community as possible. Um, and they say that they might have spoken quietly to people that might, <laughs> that might have been suspected cheating. But I doubt if they've ever gone that far, to be honest. Um, before we move on, I just want to draw your attention to the second quote on the page where it says that nothing is ever really blatant. And this will become significant in, in, in a couple of minutes time. So remember that quote. Now, here we come to what I think is probably the most controversial example from our interviews. Um, the mother that we spoke to clearly doubted that a, a seven-year-old competitor could have done this beautiful kingfisher um, without uh, a large amount of assistance from their parents. And uh, I, I don't have children myself, but I'm aware that the issue of helicopter parenting in homework and in entries to competitions like this is a much debated point. Um, I will leave it up to you really to decide. Um, but when I did that, when we presented originally in Lincoln, um, there were a small contingent of the audience that believed this could have been done by a seven year old. And I was like, don't be ridiculous, I'll lend you my glasses. Uh, but since then I have acquired a um, very able five year old nephew who's absolutely adores Lego. And I actually think he could be possible of doing this now rather than, than seven years old. So um, I have, I've really changed my opinion on this story since we presented originally. So the only example that we could find of absolute cheating <laughs> was, was the instant of two runner beans literally shoved together on a plate um came from the same lady that we spoke to about nobody ever being disqualified and nothing ever being blatant so um <laughs> i think there probably has been um the thing is i think probably this was done as a joke rather than, <laughs> than an actual kind of serious entry um but these people still did not get disqualified so i think it just shows how difficult it is to get kicked out of a local produce show um now if there are any members of the uh, WI watching, you might just want to look away now as this could be a bit painful for you, this next slide. So every other year, somebody tries to enter a packet mix cake. Now, I guess we'll probably never know really why they tried to do that. Um, we, could, we could kind of uh, postulate that it, it might be that they just don't understand the etiquette because as you'll see from the quotes, it doesn't actually say in the rules that you can't do that, but you're not going to win. So this is a really great example of where if you don't understand the etiquette, it's, it's going to really um, count against you. I mean, it might be possible that somebody promised to enter a cake and, and it hadn't worked out and so they've panicked and used a packet mix, or it might be somebody that's just trying to test the judges and their ability to spot what is a cake mix. Um, so now before we move on, I should say that as this is the Arches is a BBC programme, there are other cake mixes available, not just Betty Crockers. Okay, so what did they feel about cheating in general? Um, 
I think there's definitely, as we've seen in the literature, this, this ability to stretch rules. I mean, that's all part of the challenge. What I would say is I think, um, although you can stretch the rules, I don't think you can stretch the etiquette. And we've seen that in some of the examples. Um, nobody would themselves would ever cheat. They didn't think it was worth it. They thought it would be a shallow victory. But there was definitely, everybody definitely had a different line, which was a tipping point between stretching the rules and tipping over into cheating. Um, I don't know how we're doing on time, but um, I didn't quite get the chance in Lincoln to tell the scone story. So I'm really going to squeeze that one in now, if that's okay. <laughs> um, so two of my friends, uh, a mother and daughter, they enter the, the potty show every year they'd gone along um, to help set up and they'd noticed that there weren't many entries for the scones competition they are huge supporters of the local community so they rushed back home they baked a batch of scones between them divided them up raced back to the hall and entered them as, as two separate entries um, one of them got first place and one of them got third place so um, they clearly think that was not cheating because they were doing it from a good place I would say it's more questionable judging to be honest if anything um, but there was that line that said that if I would bought them from a shop then that would have been cheating but this was all about supporting um, the local show which I just think is fabulous so just to sum up, we're going to recap our research questions, draw some final conclusions. Archers uh, really kind of, of mirror what happens in real life. Yes, I say it does. I mean, apart from the disqualification, there is lots of evidence of, of um, amusing mishaps and a suspicion of, uh, of naughty things going on, but nothing that's really terrible. And why do people compete? It is fun, even if the, the, it's, it's just a certificate you get that actually means quite a lot to people. Um, it's important uh, to have this belief in yourself, but it's also important for other people to see that you've achieved as well. So external validation is very important. Um, and it's, it's, it's much more likely to be enjoyable if you're competing and winning against people that you know. Also, it's much better to win if there's a large group of people. Um, and just to sum up, so there was no real evidence of really bad behaviour going on. Even with the case with the runner beans, I would say, I think people were just trying to be amusing. Uh, there's, there's not a strict adherence to rules, um, but you do have to follow the etiquette, I think. But the etiquette seemed to actually be more important than the rules. And unknowing rule breaking is not considered to be cheating. And to be honest, even if you did cheat, let's face it, you are never, ever going to be disqualified from our produce show. <laughs> so we're going to give the final word to our grower of large vegetables, um, the little man with his business card. And I'll just let you read that quote. He would really like to grow a famous onion and have a famous onion on the radio. So if there's anybody watching who can help with that, do let us know. Um, I don't think it necessarily has to be Archers, it could be you and yours or Moneybox, um, but do give us a shout if you can help him achieve his special dream. Uh, and that's it, we just want to say thank you to, to everyone we interviewed. Um, uh, they really did give us a great deal of their time and uh, the Twitter, Archers Twitter admin were very useful on fact checking as well. We'll just sit through the acknowledgements questions i think that's it so if i stop sharing there we go
Absolutely brilliant, ladies. I would just like to um, say, Rachel, that was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. You were brilliant. You're an award-winning, much accomplished speaker. I was okay. trying to give a bit of tough love on Twitter and I got piled on for being saying I shouldn't be a coach. Rachel, I'm proud of you. <laughs> You don't know how. To... Sorry, you go. I was just thinking through because our business about having prize winners at academic archers was one of those mad things that we just fell into doing, wasn't it, Cara? We didn't really. We thought it would be funny, but yeah, it does. It does ignite a certain sort of um, spirit of competition in the whole thing, which, as you point out, can kind of keep, you know, keep people interested. I don't know about certificates, but I have to tell you that I still have the parsnip that you gave me. It's in, in fact, I was going to get it out and show you, but it really is not um, not for public viewing because it does it's look like vile. Four it's a four-year-old mouldy parsnip. <laughs> it's not mouldy. It's been, it went straight in the freezer when it came back. But um, I don't, because we said we, could, we probably could have called our paper, my onion is bigger than your onion. But knowing now Cara's obsession with... Um, <laughs> Dubalontrons and filth. I think parsnip <laughs> is probably a much better vegetable for, for that business. I saw you in the marrow. I saw you. <laughs> I tell you what, the other thing I was thinking while you were talking is that, you know, in all walks of life, the difference between the written down rules and the conventions and the etiquette, that's how you maintain control over a thing, right? Is that there's the sort of, you know. Um, and I then was thinking. We do, we use it, don't we? we? Well, you know, it is a thing to say someone knows, know, you know your onions. And it's almost like oh. knowing your onions is understanding and being able to serve back the etiquette rather than the spirit of the rules. Very clever. I like that. Yeah, I am quite clever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Annie, have you got any final things to say? Uh, no, not really. Um, I did get a third for my marmalade in 2017, but I've been a bit lax, really. And uh, slightly to correct what you said at the beginning, I retired at the end of September. So I should have no excuse this year for not entering every aspect of that show. <laughs> I don't know that I can be bothered. No. I tell you what, what I think What are you is... doing, Nick? What are you doing? Are you fishing? I'm fishing a suffragette oh. scarf. <laughs> Lovely. Not for a competition, just for me. Um, yeah, I think that... Um, oh, it's just gone straight out of my head. Something something about competition. Yeah, I'm not knitting this scarf for anybody apart from... For, for competition. Um, so, I think we're a little bit over, so I'm going to relieve you of the speaky bit. Thank you so much, ladies. Thank you. <laughs> right, and moving on to the next introduction. We're up to 65 people in the chat, so I hope if you did miss the earlier papers, then um, it'll all be online. So Claire Mortimer was the, a major contributor to the reimagining of Susan. And one of my favorite academic archers moments of all time when 
Claire started and said, I just, um, th there are matriarchs in fiction, which I now realise is all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously presenting an analysis of Susan in, in, in the great canon of fictional matriarchs in front of Susan was a slight kind of mind meld for Claire. So it's, a, it's a, that's one of my favourite moments of all time. I'll pass you over to Claire for her brilliant paper. Is that... Oh, I'm unmuted. Hello. Hello. Um, just a couple of things. I've got a dodgy throat. So I might lose my voice at times. My daughter's got a Zoom conference at quarter to 12. And I'm not quite sure whether our bandwidth will stand up to it. Maybe it will. We don't know. Um, but she does her academy thing online. So, so anyway, I'll get started. Um, yeah, Susan Carter. This paper is essentially the same. Um, I've been very lazy. It's more or less the same as the one that I presented. Let me open my PowerPoint, actually. Is that okay? Uh, 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 slideshow, play from start. Do you want to, um, at the bottom of your screen on the Zoom controls, there's a big green button that says um, share oh. screen. If oh, you hang on. That, you'll then get a little dialogue box up which will show all yeah. the screens that you have open and then just click got on the PowerPoint one and then slideshow from there. Can you, have I got it? You've got it. Brilliant. Yeah. So then just go start slideshow in. Okay, that's fine, is it? Yep, okay. Right, so as the foremost gossip in Ambridge, Susan Carter can lay claim to being the most powerful character in the Archers. Ridiculed for her social aspirations, Susan is bolstered by her proximity to the world of privilege through her son's marriage into the Aldridge clan. Uh, her husband's status as chairman of the parish council. And actually, this is where also I need to say, I haven't actually been listening that carefully over the past few months. And is Neil still manager of Justin Elliott's pig unit? Yeah, because I know there was some kind of tension there. Within the village, Susan is both feared and ridiculed, giving her an ambivalent status in the narrative, yet she is pivotal in her role at the heart of the information superhighway of gossip within the Ambridge community. Her role is that of a Greek chorus, commenting on and judging the actions of her acquaintances, her position facilitated by her job as manager of the village shop at the heart of the village dealings. Okay. Mm. My paper set out to examine the characterization of Susan, and I'm a great Susan fan, within the context of the enduring tradition of battle axes in soap operas and more broadly across European cultural history, considering how social class and the discourses regarding aging femininities inform such characters. Susan's character is informed by the comic tradition of the unruly working class matriarch who is both strong and powerful, yet whose excessive talk reinforces the social divide that she longs to overcome. Susan belongs to a tradition of gossips in British popular culture who are typically middle-aged, working-class women who seek to overcome their marginal social status. 
Now, the battle axe often elicits a strong response from the audience, engaging listeners in a love-hate relationship, as is certainly the case with Susan. Uh, and I hope you can see some of the quotes, which I got at the time, a couple of years ago, about Susan. Um, 50 comments were posted in one discussion about her role in The Archers, and there was certainly no restraint as listeners ripped into the character, um, often very defensive of Neil. Um, someone compared her to a witch, saying, I hear that they are bringing back the ducking stool just for her. The strength of the feeling that she inspires is evident in one comment, which was posted on YouTube. Yeah. Oh no, hang on, not this one. God, I hate her character, Susan, such a nosy, nosy, nosy cow. Not nasty as such, but so stupid and selfish with amazingly loose lips that she always ends up being nasty to virtually everyone. And a lot of the time behind people's backs, although not always, occasionally stretch their faces. But because she's so dumb and self-righteous, she doesn't at all notice that she's blatantly rude. But the contradiction does say that, say that she's definitely the character I love to hate. And we have that kind of oxymoron there. It kind of everyone likes hating Susan. Nevertheless, there are occasional uh, listeners who feel somewhat more warmth for her, including me, as typified by the following comment. Um, this one, Susan is the cornerstone of Ambridge. We should all feel indebted towards her and her loyalty to Neil and her family show that deep, deep, deep down, she's a good person. We would all be lost without Susan. So Susan divides and provokes listeners. She's a character that guarantees a reaction, although it's not always favorable. She's pilloried on account of her ignorance, her spite and her ambition more often than not because she is opinionated and does not necessarily keep her views to herself. Um, now, what I am interested in is to what extent, well, first of all, why does she provoke such strong responses? And clearly she is constructed to provoke strong responses. And what is the role of social class, age and gender in producing this response? Is it the fact that she's an outspoken middle-aged woman who refuses to be quiet, which makes her more of a figure of fun and also an object of disapproval? Um, right, so the character of Susan is informed by the tradition of the working class matriarch that is a powerful force who dominates the family and home and whose sphere of influence is felt in the wider community. Hang on, have I got this? Yes. Yeah. Susan cherishes her position in the community, community, being happily married to Neil as mother and both grandmother, holding down two jobs, not only managing the village shop, but of course working in the dairy. She has overcome humiliation and disaster. Of course, this is why I've got this slide. Um, in the past with a character making national headlines in 1993, when imprisoned for harboring escaped felon, her brother, Clive Horobin. Susan was not one to let this hold her back, and both she and Neil have worked hard to attain a comfortable position in the community. She is fiercely loyal to her family, hardworking and, hard and driven in her quest for recognition and status. 
Now, as a matriarch um, from working class roots, she is informed by a tradition which Richard Hoggart wrote about in The Uses of Literacy. Um, and he was writing about his childhood and working class leads and the powerful women in, in the community. He recalled how the mother held the working class home together more than the father, reaching the apotheosis of her maternal powers in early middle or middle age, when she has fully established herself as the mother of the family, when she comes into her own. Uh, the domestic environment is where the matriarch prospers, according to Hoggart. The endless struggles and adversity consolidating her importance at the heart of the family and community and rendering her content. Moreover, despite her physical deterioration and the stress of struggling to get by, the matriarch is a survivor. Susan is repeatedly humiliated and, of course, even imprisoned, as we, have, as we have seen. Yet her family have managed to better themselves and she has managed to rise above her difficult start in life. Middle-aged, working class and outspoken, Susan belongs to a broader tradition of comic types in British popular culture, as featured in the bawdy postcards of Donald McGill, as featured in this example with depictions of large bossy women and their timid henpecked husbands. The figuration of the middle-aged woman as harridan and battle axe has been a perennial source of humor, as with a long tradition of various soap opera uh, matriarchs, which can be traced back to Harridan and the hairnet, Ina Sharples, uh, the gossip and prophet of doom who presided over Coronation Street, there she is on the left, as I'm sure you can all recognize, um, beyond so proper similar types can be found in sitcoms. So on the right, we have uh, Ma Larkin from the Larkins, uh, that's Peggy Mount. Um, that was a sitcom uh, broadcast in 1958-1964. Also, there's Nora Batty in Last of the Summer Wine and Hyacinth Bucket or Bouquet in Keeping Up Appearances. So this legion of battle axes are predominantly working class, not always, but predominantly strong-willed and unstoppable, beholden to nobody and comic in their social aspirations. So the traditional tradition of the working class battle axe recurs throughout wider European cultural histories in Britain and beyond, as typified in the monstrous matriarch featured in Peter Bruegel's Dollar Greet, which you can see the larger painting on the right there, uh, from 1562. The painting was inspired by Flemish folklore, with Greet being a disparaging name for any ill-tempered scolding woman. Uh, I've got a close-up of Greet here, there we are. Um, she is depicted leading an army of peasant women to plunder hell. Her warrior status is indicated as she is dressed in armour, sword in her hand, her mouth agape while clutching cooking utensils. Bruegel was painting at the time of the Spanish occupation of the Netherlands and the figure of Greet was a celebration of fearless resistance against the odds. Nevertheless, she is a comic figure uh, taking on the creatures guarding hell to defend her household. I, Susan, is the equivalent of Dullagreet, the Dullagreet of Ambridge, who defends her pathetic household goods, actually not so pathetic, um, against the community or any kind of enemy. 
The battle axe works as a comic grotesque, yet it allows visibility for the middle-aged working class woman, which is widely denied within a patriarchal society. She is a monstrous figure on account of her failure to comply with the feminine ideal, manifesting qualities which are traditionally associated with masculinity, such as assertiveness and power. The feminist scholar Kathleen Rowe, we see her see here her book, The Unruly Woman makes the point that the matriarch represents a dreaded domesticity and propriety, being a fearsome or silly symbol of repression. These characters are set up as a butt of laughter and may be old and stubbornly resistant or indifferent to male desire, fat or scrawny, shrill and ultimately unfeminine. Social class is often a vital factor in the formation of the Harridan. Despite Susan's perennial efforts to bridge the social divide, her working class origins betray themselves time and time again. Um, I don't know where that fits in. There we are. Susan comes from a humble working class background, being one of the Horobin dynasty. Charlotte Martin, who plays the role of Susan, described her character's background as coming from one of the poorest families in Ambridge, uh, growing up in a council house with cars all over the front garden and a host of dodgy siblings. Susan's values are shared with the original Coronation Street matriarchs, uh, described by Dorothy Hobson as being founded in the working class values of the 1950s. A belief that hard work and gaining and retaining respectability were important qualities. Susan's social climbing has faced various setbacks, which are the source of much humour at her expense. One example, I can hear someone on that. One example was the Calendar Girls storyline with Susan nervously, here we are, nervously agreeing to be Miss October, only to find her modesty betrayed by revealing a little too much. Susan's nervousness over her body reflects her struggle to assert her claim to social status within the village. She has to be constantly vigilant about her image and that of her family to ensure that she can stake a claim to be part of the Ambridge middle class. As listeners, and do we, are we largely middle class, um, the Archer's audience? I hesitate to suggest. We relish the moments that the star slips from the vital part of Miss October and when Susan's pretensions are undercut. Susan's hysteria over the family photo shoot, putting Neil on a strict diet and agonising over her dress, is ultimately rewarded by the photographer failing to show up and her granddaughter, Kira Grundy, vomiting over Susan's buttercup yellow dress. So Susan tries to set herself apart and above the other working class matriarch, Clary Grundy, yet together they perform the role of a Greek chorus, commenting on the events of the village as they work side by side in the dairy at Bridge Farm. And they follow a tradition which can be traced to Coronation Street, and here we are, the triumvirate of Minnie Caldwell, Ina Sharples and Martha Longhurst, and we see them here in their glory compared to a Shakespearean comic trio who commented on the action from the Snug of the Rover's return. Susan and Clary perform a similar role, connected by family and their work, often at loggerheads 
rather um, more often loggerheads with each other than not. Notably, Clary is constructed as the more sympathetic of the two, because she accepts her role in life, which is that of constant struggle and as the victim of the shenanigans of the Grundy men. Whereas Neil is constructed as the victim of his nagging, aspirational and assertive wife, a henpecked, loving husband prepared to put up with the indignities of being Justin Stooge in his new job so as to keep Susan happy. And people might want to update me on that. Indeed, it is clear in forums how listeners demonstrate pity for Neil, specifically because he is married to Susan. The qualities that render Susan a Harridan can be seen from a very different perspective when we see how she utilises her assertiveness for gain. Oh, so the Kafir story uh, storyline highlighted this aspect of Susan's character when she realises that she can play Helen and Tom Archer off against each other to improve work conditions and pay for her and Clary. Initially inspired by her customary competitiveness to try and beat Clary and impress Tom with her kafir, and there's a link to the previous paper with the, her competitive instinct, the rivalry between the two evolves into a sisterhood as Susan sees past Tom's divide and rule approach to management and successfully manipulates the situation, making Helen believe that the kafir work demanded by Tom was compromising cheese production the horror. Despite her best efforts, Susan's body, voice and behaviour all refuse the disciplinary discourse of middle-class femininity. Uh, actor Charlotte Martin explained how the character started out as a hardy-esque country girl, evolving with the years to speak with a more broad rural accent, her voice being rather whiny and insistently grating. Um, Susan's voice befits her role as a gossip, nuanced to wheedle information out of others. Knowledge is power, of course, ensuring that Susan is fully aware of the doings of the community, enabling her to deploy that knowledge to help consolidate the status of her and her family. Susan's use of gossip is typical of behaviour traits and purpose of the matriarch in the soap opera, uh, being the spine and the nerve ends of of the soap opera, their function vital to the progression of gossiping, which works not only as a recognisable character trait, but also as a way of ensuring audience knowledge of the plot, because they're constantly going over events that have happened. Uh, historian Elizabeth Roberts, in her research into working class women in the second half of the 20th century, uh, observed how gossip was an integral part of women's lives. It confirmed their feeling of belonging to a social group with a common history, common traditions and shared standards of behaviour. It helped those experiencing difficulties in their lives. To a certain extent, Susan is shunned and feared by other characters because of her superlative skills as a gossip. For as Robert's research revealed, gossip was also feared. It could ruin reputations. Um, Susan is at the centre of the webs of intrigue within the community by being located in both the village shop and bridge farm, where she has access to a wide section of the Ambridge population, enhanced by her status as an in-law of the Aldridges and as wife to the chairman of the parish council. This positioning of the character gives her the potential for involvement across different storylines, her day-to-day -day interactions spanning social classes and the key families of the community. 
she's able to weaponize gossip to achieve her goals. Although her comic status ensures that more often than not, such maneuvers backfire and she's once again humiliated. Her use of gossip gives her power and status, but equally works to isolate her as she is inevitably avoided in dread of her capability to disseminate people's private details. Um, right, to conclude, Susan represents a marginalized social group in terms of her gender, age and social class, yet she is given license and visibility within the tradition of the working class matriarch in the soap opera. She has been largely deployed for comic effects since the melodrama of her incarceration, and as such is true to the spirit of the carnivalesque tradition, wherein the marginalized groups, such as the middle-aged working class woman, are allowed visibility, voice and power. Gossip becomes a tool for Susan to continue her ascent up the social ladder, yet the comedy of her character lies in her numerous failures to pass as middle class. Ultimately, the status quo is maintained and the marginalised remain at the periphery of the community, the object of ridicule. But things have changed somewhat since I delivered my paper because there's a new middle uh, working class matriarch on the street or in the village. And that is, of course, Tracy Horobin. And I just wondered uh, what listeners thought about Tracy and how, whether Tracy has actually taken over a lot of Susan's role in The Archers, um, because she's become much more central character um, and has been foregrounded and has much in common with Susan as well. Okay, that's me done. Thank you so much for that. That was really, really lovely and the comments going absolutely crazy as well. I was, um, Claire Asprey said as well about a kind of, if there's a comparison between the working class matriarch and the, the upper class dowager aunt, they seem to sort of share um, some common ground there as well. And I was thinking of Tracy, Susan and Emma uh, with Peggy, Jennifer and Kate. And what, who would you oh, yeah. stuck in a lift with, but, you know, in a sense on that one. Um, and I love the way that uh, Tracy can rob Susan's middle class pretensions up the wrong way. And uh, Susan getting a little bit sort of agitated about that reminder of how she was. But I mean, all that with love and loveliness. <clears throat> Laura, did you want to ask a question? <laughs> Sorry, Claire, go carry Sorry, on. Sorry, I was just tapping. Oh. So, can we hear, please, from Lou? That uh, hang on, am I? Yeah, yeah. Lou, what do you think? You also presented a brilliant paper in this session, Lou Gillies. What would you like to add in terms of the defence of Susan? <laughs> I think it might have been my comment that you put up in her defence. <laughs> it sounds just like oh, really? shit I come out with, really, doesn't it? <laughs> What do you I think, think about the Tracy angle. Well, I have to say, in fact, my daughter came in at that point, so I think I was off camera. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. The question is, do we think that because Susan's sort of, I mean, I hate all that taking the piss out of her class pretension stuff. I hate it, and I know that there's a sort of thing about how Kerry is the writer that, um, you know, this sort of cult of Kerry 
but I genuinely believe that Kerry Davis writes Susan right because it's with warmth and affection. And whenever it's sort of too, I mean, what, why is it funny to laugh at somebody who wants to have a muses bouche and stuff? I just I hate, <laughs> hate that. I think it's just nasty. So um, Kerry definitely brings out all the facets of Susan. Sorry. L- I, I, I think it's a shame because I think the term social climber so it's quite bad and it's used in a derogatory manner whereas she's got aspirations she yeah, wants to yeah. better herself and why is that a bad thing totally and i mean who doesn't watch master chef who doesn't want jus and you know <laughs> little rubbery shellfish things you know we all do it she like she said susan represents us all and that's why no one likes her oh it's, it's true isn't it when when um when Charlotte Martin went on to, to talk of, of her her journey with Susan and how she said, you know, there was Susan as a child looking out of that council house window as the Elizabeths and Shulas went past on their ponies and things. And I really, my heart went out to her completely. I mean, I, I grew up on a rural, you know, council estate, so I, I, I get that completely. But why, why shouldn't she want something like that? And we talked to the same of Emma as well, didn't she? Mm. Didn't we, yeah. when she was going for her house? Like, why shouldn't she want a house for her mm. family? I and agree. Why, why, should, why, is she not as just, why is she not just as entitled to it as anyone else? Exactly. But then, and that's the, and that's the sort of slightly spiky part, is because then, I mean, it was like with the when Emma didn't get her house, like, she'd tipped over into sort of this monstrous, cognac glass hoarder but everybody deserves a house you know it, it, I don't know there's uh, there's something there's some there's something I mean let's face it it's even with the sort of patriarchy defense of misogyny is kind of allowed but the the condescension meted out by the educated on the working class is the most insidious form of discrimination in our society full stop and you can call it what you like but you know the cultural and social capital the knowing your onions Rachel and Annie <laughs> and how to succeed in the world is this incredibly bourgeois scenario under which you know as Peter Matthews said to us at the beginning about Linda you know I'll speak to the doctor I'll speak to the MP you know, it is the hoarding of social and cultural capital that, you know, why why shouldn't she have a why shouldn't they all have bloody houses? I mean, come along. Sorry, a bit of a rant there for me. It's just snobbery. It's it's yeah. snobbery. We don't want anyone to become successful, and if they do become successful, then we want to knock them off their perches. Mm, it's horrible. And I tell you what I thought with um, this whole thing about looking out the window and Daddy would, couldn't buy me a pony and stuff, about the, the archers. I mean, neither Elizabeth nor Shula in their middle age, which I'm rebranding as, you know, our optimal power, Cara, we're, we're, we're at, you know, we're, we're, you can't, people can't ignore us because we've achieved <laughs> professional and so again social capital which means that we we can't be ignored and um the bloody archer women are just falling over one by one into various ridiculousnesses because they're not very resilient Mm. there's a link between emotional resilience and flood resilience but then if you're talking emotional resilience hello tracy well who seems to weather kind of every storm going yeah 
um, and, and just keeps on going through. And I, um, I'm intrigued what role Tracy might have in the pandemic in Ambridge. He could be quite a rallying person in that sense. And I can't, I can't see where the comment is now in the chat, but somebody's saying as well that Tracy doesn't seem to care so much about what other people think of her. No. That's an amazing facet to a personal resilience to have. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I thought that, and, and, as I said, and again, you know, yes, the work that Charlotte had done, having played Susan for 40 years, and as, as just in case there's anyone left that doesn't know, having done a PhD in psychology, become a child psychologist, she'd really, really thought about what, you know, all the dimensions of Susan. And, um, and yeah, I just don't think that... Uh, such as the sort of slightly tight-ass, tight-lipped archers or aldridges are demonstrating themselves well in their um, era of optimum power in their middle age. It's um, that they're sort of falling apart in the face of kind of life. Right. Um, there was oh, can I just say one more thing? Scallops. Yes, yes, That's yeah, what I meant. Scallops, not little rubbery, shellfish things. <laughs> we all knew what you meant. Don't you worry. <laughs> The other thing I wanted to say was, if you've not been listening so much, Claire, there was this absolutely mental thing a couple of months ago where with Jacob, where um, Susan had been like probing him about normal stuff in the shop, you know, and then he oh. said to Chris Carter, oh my God, this absolute, you know, this cow. And he was like, I think you're talking about my mum there. And he gave her flowers to apologise. And then there was this kind of crisis for Susan, sort of, do people see me like that? And it was also when Emma was really in a mess, uh, obviously about the breakup with Ed. And she was like, why, doesn't, why don't people come to me? And it was yeah. written yeah. for us, I mean, end of. But like, you know... Susan isn't oblivious to this stuff. No. She's not unaware. No. If she was just, you know, just um, serving it out unreflectively, but she get, she's painfully aware of all this distinction. I mean, that, obviously the Bourdieu book distinction is exactly about this. It's about how we classify people and then use that information to know your onions. <laughs> and she was the same with uh, with Alice as well. I did often. I've, I've mentioned it before, but when they had the dinner party, and Jennifer was sort of saying to Alice, "When are you going to get pregnant?" And um, Susan and Alice have a conversation in the kitchen. And Susan was much more sympathetic mm, uh, right. to to Alice then, and just saying, you know, "It's your body, and don't listen to your mother." Yes, and I think that's right. And, and there is a real kindness in Susan that's underneath. And uh, yeah, I think what, the times when she's written for laughs, I mean, yeah, you're right, that, that photo shoot, interestingly enough, I had, so that was about three or four years ago. I'd been with John, my husband, 20 years, and I made him do a photo shoot with our dog. And he spent the entire time literally nearly weeping about how it was the chaviest thing he'd ever been involved in. And I was just like, I just thought it was a nice thing. But you know what I mean? Like, the, yeah, just, just him and the dog. No, all of us. I, in fact, I'll show you the picture. And, um, and I just thought it was kind of, I just found it hilarious that you can draw class distinction from getting a portrait done. Do you know what I mean? And that was clearly, I mean, there's no way the, the Aldridges would do it. Mm. They would, that would be, 
you know, um, style in black and white next time they're in, in black tie for the hunt ball. You know what I mean? It's like these really fine distinctions. Hang on. I drew the picture of me and the dog. <laughs> As ever, so much chat about Susan. She is such a key, key character. There it is. We love it. There you go. <laughs> That's us oh, in I didn't see it. Oh, hang on, hang on. Oh. <laughs> hang on. This is, this is the way to do it. Great. <laughs> when blessed out of diabetes. Oh. Can we move on to our last paper? Yeah, sorry, Karen. Yes, okay. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Louise. Thank you. Thank you. Right, hang on. I've got my last link here, my last segue. So. Um, as I've said, Claire Mortimer's paper provided a large chunk of the meat of Gender, Sex and Gossip, our, our third book. And there was a whole chunk of work that we did around this time, which I've got here. Uh, 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 uh. We did promo for Gossip all over the place. But the highlight was at the Hay Festival last summer, where Charlotte Martin again joined us to reprise the arguments from the book. And also, Cara and I were interviewed on Woman's Hour, Bucket List Achievement Unlocked. Unfortunately, in this period, we became um, extremely minor characters in the gender and cultural wars raging in this crazy country. And Sarah Kate Merry, who has been arch as stalwart, unfortunately got caught up in a bit of a media furore. Um, oh, I'm muted, am I? No, no, you're fine. Am I? All right. Um, now, we, awarded, we gave Sarah an award for most uh, media scrutiny or something, most media interest, but God, there were really some lessons here for media training for young academics, or should I say, um, you know, people with both um, something to say and in possession of a vagina. It's a problem for some people in the mainstream media, hashtag MSM. So we'd had our first kind of run in with the Daily Mail um, in, in response to the Lincoln Conference, where there's such a columnist, Ephraim Hardcastle, who just, his job for the Daily Mail is to just spitfire in all directions. And he wrote this incredibly snidey piece about how any real Archers fan would dismiss academic Archers as just, as just nonsense. So we didn't really like that and complained about it at the time. And then we, we were doing more promo for the books. And you know, for that, you sort of have to deal with the bloody media. And um, we were talked into it by a PR at the, pub, at the publishers that the Daily Mail were really interested. They were real fans. They really wanted to do something with us. And there was endless phone calls. You know, Cara gave her extremely polished sort of media approach. Now, I don't think I've ever fessed up to this, but they caught me running between a select committee hearing and um, a ministerial meeting when I'd had a sneaky gin and tonic and I just talked to the journalist. I, I, I tried my best, but the sentence that I said was, we're not arguing that 
the women in the arches are just property of the farms like the animals we're just saying it's important to pay attention to the ways that they're portrayed and of course the uh, the, the the um the day it came out leading radical feminist brackets bitch dr headlam says says the women are the property of the farms just like the animals i mean it was it was just your absolute tabloid sting and being totally done over in terms of you know utterly um you know manipulated to their agenda and just in case your sense of outrage has dulled which mine hasn't i'm going to read you from the article just quickly introducing what is an extremely strong and well-argued paper by Sarah. Academics slam the archers as more sexist than James Bond because the female characters only ever talk about the men. An academic study concluded that the female characters are obsessed with men. Jermaine Greer, leading feminist, and others have criticised the findings. The archers is so steeped in sexism it makes a 60s Bond film seem almost politically correct. Anywho, um, this was the this was the the media storm, um, and what is funny is that when you hear the completely well argued and sensible paper that Sarah wrote, it just demonstrates that dealing with with the press um, can not always be very pleasing. And actually, as a result, Cara and I didn't haven't done a lot of media really since. So we had the book and the launch, and we toured it, but we didn't put a lot of effort into press for Reading. Um, no, I mean, we did, we did a lot of just jollying around literature festivals drinking champagne, to be fair. Yeah, we did do that. Um, but it's, I don't know, it's a very, well, for the, for the piece that Cara is doing on sort of communities of practice and the role of academic archers, I would say that um, the media side of it, which I'm still quite crap at and I do feel terrible about, um, has been one of the things which has um helped me to hone that well have any skill at all in that regard anyway having said all of that sarah kate mary and the bechtel wallace test an empirically strong paper for your enjoyment okay hello right can you hear me okay Okay, good. Um, so I'm assuming that you can, <laughs> I'm assuming you can also see my screen, but you can't because I haven't done the thing. Bear with uh, that one. Okay. There we go. Marvelous. Okay, is that okay? Good, brilliant. Um, yes, I'm not going to talk about the media stuff because it put me off everything forever. Um, so this um, paper has not been updated because it is based on a load of um, data from two year, two and a half, one and a half, two years ago. Um, <clears throat> so the title comes from um, a quote from Virginia Woolf in A Room of One's Own. Um, she was lamenting that uh, there weren't enough female friendships depicted in literature there is an argument to be made that she was wrong. Um, but the quote goes on to say that all the great women of fiction were seen only in relation to the other sex and how small a part of a woman's life is that. Um, so her work, along with other things, was the inspiration for the Bechtel test, for what has become known as the Bechtel test or the Bechtel-Wallace test. 
And I'm going to talk about um, analysis of a year's worth of women's conversations in Ambridge using the Bechdel-Wallace test as the basis of the analysis. Um, I did not, and in fact, I flatly refused to compare the archers to any films, never mind James Bond. Um, okay, so. I'm going to briefly explain what the Bechdel-Wallace test is, um, if anyone doesn't know it um, or hasn't, don't, don't know the details. Alison Bechdel is an American um, cartoonist and graphic novelist. She wrote a long-running webcomic series called Dykes to Watch Out For. And in this strip, um, which is called The Rule, um, a character explains that she only sees a film if it meets certain requirements. So this is the section which is... Um, relevant to the rule. The character says she'll only watch a film if it has two women in it and they have a conversation and it's not about a man. The script was written in 1985 and it wasn't really talked about um, for about 20 years and somebody sort of dug it up in the mid 2000s and it started getting traction on the internet as a way of evaluating the representation of women in films and other media, which is when it got the title of the Bechdel test. Um, I call it the Bechdel-Wallace test, which is what Alison Bechdel asks people to use because, well, <laughs> in as much as she ever asks anyone, um, because it's, the inspiration for it came from her friend, um, Liz Wallace. Um, so it's, used as a measure for how feminist a film or a piece of media is, but it doesn't really work for that. Um, it has a lot of flaws, but I won't talk any more about that because otherwise I, that would be my entire time taken up with me blithering on about the Bechdel-Wallace test. But if anyone's interested, please feel free to get in touch. So I adapted the test um, for the archers so that I could analyse a year's worth of women's conversations, but I did um, adapt it to better suit the archers. So the basic criteria were two or more women, a conversation about something other than a man, um, and it must last for more than 30 seconds. Um, that's another test which is being, you know, there's a, there's a time limit put on some of these when people do use it as a media test. 30 seconds does seem like quite a lot out of a 13 minute episode. Um, but, um, when conversations failed this part, this criteria, criterion, um, it was because of the topic or because a man became part of the conversation. Um, so I added in the criterion that a man cannot be present, um, even if he is silent, um, which is quite strict. But I was working on the principle that the presence of a man would alter the conversation that the women were having. Um, and there were quite a few times when I was noting down the details of the conversation and all of a sudden a man piped up from the corner um, because they are sneaky. So when I was testing the archers, um, I had a year's, I was looking at a year's worth of data from the start of March, 2018 to the start, to the end, to the end of February, 2019. Um, and as Nicola said, my, I wrote a chapter for the um, Gender, Sex and Gossip book, and that was based on just five months worth of data. So that was quite um, strict. I only counted conversations which lasted for a whole scene. And when I was looking at the entire year's worth of data, I decided to be a bit less strict or rather um, to add in an extra category. 
so I looked at the data separately for conversations, for scenes, and for episodes. So a conversation um, passes if it meets the criteria I mentioned on the previous slide. If um, there are somewhere usually in, in each episode, somewhere between four and 10 scenes, um, according to my criteria, a scene must, um, it could contain several conversations as people move in and out and the conversations topics change. So for example, there could be a scene in the dairy. This all seems really weird now because I feel like we haven't been in the dairy for months. Um, but a scene could be in the dairy with between Clary and Susan and then Pat comes in. So that conversation changes to a three way conversation. And then Tom comes in and makes it all about him. And so that would be a scene that had um, a total of three conversations. Two of them were between women and both of which the one between Clary and Susan and the one between Clary, Susan and Pat, it could pass and they could both pass if they were long enough and they weren't about men. But the whole scene wouldn't pass because Tom came in at the end of it. So it seems a bit complicated. Um, it's harder to, to explain it in words than to actually do the analysis. And I counted um, an episode as a pass if it contained one passing scene, not, not just one conversation. So um, after all the explanation, we're moving on to the data and the numbers. So this is an incredibly complex chart. There were a total of um, 313 episodes from the beginning of March to the end of February um, 2018 to 19. And within these episodes, there were 530 conversations between women and 267 of them passed the test. So just over 50% passed, uh, which isn't, I don't think that's a bad percentage. Um, considering, especially considering the things that going, were going on in Ambridge then. Um, this was the peak of the Pond of Poison, Freddie's dealing, um, Lily and Russ getting together, and Shula and Alistair's divorce. Oh, also, and also the, the surrogacy storyline with Ian and Adam. Um, so there was a lot going on that involved men, obviously. Um, looking at the scenes, the picture is slightly less rosy, so the light colour is the passes um, and the darker colour is the fails. There were a total of 507 scenes in which women talked to each other and 196 of them passed. So just under 40% of the scenes only contained conversations that passed the test. Um, this is what I looked at in my chapter and um, the uh, percentage for the whole year is actually slightly lower than um, in those five months um, and it does I know it does seem slightly picky to want the whole scene to pass the test but one of the things that the data show is that it's far more common for a man to come in and interrupt a conversation between women than the other way around so when I'm looking at episodes um, the episodes that passed the test this was actually the most surprising bit. There were 313 episodes, 109 of them passed. There's, again, that's the lighter colour on the bigger circle. So 35% passed, um, which means that they contained at least one scene made up of conversations between women that were not about men. And of the 204 that didn't pass, 96 had scenes which failed because the conversations were about men. 
which means that 35% of all of the episodes during that year did not contain any conversations between women at all. Um, when I did the analysis for the book chapter, that was almost exactly one third. So the figure for the whole year is ever so slightly higher. So just approximately a third. Um, and actually to go back to Susan, um, some of, sometimes the episodes that fail have some of the best conversations in them involving women. Um, Susan talked about meeting Neil um, and their, their relationship starting as an electric connection. And also, she says, <laughs> when you've been together as long as Neil and I have, you lose count of every magical moment, which I just, I love Susan when she talks about her relationship with Neil. Um, so another graph, I wanted to talk briefly about the amount of time in each episode that were taken up with the qualifying conversation. So 109 episodes that passed the test. And for the vast majority, as you can see from the last three columns, uh, from the first two columns, um, women's conversations took up less than 40% of the entire episode. So there are, um, because of um, some of the storylines, which I'll talk about um, in, a, in a moment, there, are, um, there were some episodes which were almost entirely uh, women. So the Food and Farming Awards thing um, came up and there was, I mean, there was practically no male um, discussion as part of that. It was, a lot of it was Helen and Pat. Um, and this was also the period when Olwyn was around, for those of you who remember her. So we talked, I talked a bit about um, who we heard most. And um, because of the storylines that were going on, I look, you know, looking at this now, there are people that we have barely heard in the last few months. So it's really clear how the churn of focus goes um, across the episodes. But these were the women who we heard most throughout the year. Um, Elizabeth was well clear at the top of the table. Um, there was stuff going on with Lily. There was stuff going on with um, the Freddie. Um, she she had a you know she was much more audible, visible than she is at the moment, for example. Um, and Jennifer also. Um, it was the Pond of Poison era, so Jennifer is really high up. But um, you look at the conversations which passed the test, um, Jennifer actually comes up higher than Elizabeth. So um, you may spot, if you are eagle-eyed, um, that we have a small Tracy who is underneath Lillian. Um, she wasn't really around very much at that time. Um, underneath Olwyn on the bottom um, is Bess, who is um, Ben's sheepdog. And I have to admit that she didn't hold up her end of the conversation, but Jill had a whole 30 second conversation with her in the kitchen um, just before she poisoned her. So that was Bess's moment of uh, fame. These are the top um, conversations between two women. Um, so the pairs who came top in terms of the number of conversations. Um, conversations between two women were the most common. Um, three and four women talking together does happen quite a lot. So these are the top 10 pairs um, ordered by, so they're in the order of the, number, the conversations that passed. So you can see that obviously Elizabeth and Lily high up the list, this was um, <laughs> Lily's venture into lesbianism, not, um, but they had a lot of conversations about Meredith and what was going on in Lily's life. And um, Aldwin and Pat 
I mean, there, you know, again, there was very little interaction from any of the men uh, at Bridge Farm at that time. So Alwyn and Pat, all of their conversations uh, were uh, past the test. Helen and Pat had a lot going on as well, obviously, because of the um, Food and Farming Awards and Alwyn, which, you know, didn't go well. Um, the percentages tell a good story. So Elizabeth and Shula, for example, um, who are quite low down, they had 30 conversations, but they were mostly talking about Freddie and Russ and Alistair. So they were the main topics of conversation. And also an interesting thing, six out of the 10 pairs are related. Um, there's been some discussion lately about, um, you know, sort of who, who Linda's friends are in the village. And, um, you know, Linda's very low down for someone who we probably think of as being quite a forceful presence within the village. She only has one entry on this list of the top 10 chatters um, with Lin Lillian. And I can tell you that the majority of them were during the dog wars. So they were, um, you know, it was, wasn't exactly what you'd call a friendship at the time. Um, and uh, Olwen obviously was sort of an incomer from outside of the village. But Clary and Susan are really the best example of an actual female friendship um, within the um, within the village. So looking at the topics that people talked about, and these are the top 25. Home farm um, was obviously high on the list. I Most conversations about Pond of Poison weren't included, but if it was something about um, Kate or something specifically about Jennifer, I tended to include it. I didn't um, include anything that obviously included Brian as the portent of doom that he was so um the selling of the land and the house at home farm was a big thing christine because her health and her ongoing care was a big um, storyline at the time and of course affordable housing and the canterbury tales who tied for third place um and the dogs i mean i do actually remember that storyline with quite a lot of fondness um although the Tinder for dogs bit of it was far more entertaining than the, than the my dog is better than your dog rivalry between Lillian and Linda. Um, so there's another um, word cloud of uh, the topics that came up. Um, so this was a very whistle-stop um, tour through the results of my um, investigation into the conversations of the women of Ambridge. Um, it was I didn't answer a specific, I didn't have a specific question to answer, but I don't, I think that it doesn't in any way prove that the artist is sexist. Um, it does show, however, that we don't really hear enough of the women of Ambridge. Um, although I think our, our opinions on that will definitely differ depending on which women we're actually hearing. So that's it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Very, very good. Lots of uh, rounds of applause on the screens here. I'm reminded again in that as well that there's such a lack of female friendships in Ambridge. And even when women are talking, they're not necessarily talking about their own interrelationship or their kind of more intimate lives. It's still quite functional conversations. And um, yeah. I think that's really lacking. We are sorely, sorely lacking women's friendships in Ambridge I and mean, we're sort of we're missing a lot but I think over the last year we've had um Jim Jazza and Alistair as a good example of male friendships but 
you know, as a really good example of male friendships, but the women's friendships are sorely lacking. And I know when Linda was in hospital, I was just, what, who, you know, Tracy would probably seem to be the person who's closest to her. And that's a friendship of convenience because they work together, not that they don't get on well, but they haven't got a relationship which is built up in the same way that Clary and Susan's relationship has. And I, Clary and Susan are a marvellous example. Yes. I think we all felt sad when they fell out. Um, but yeah, there's, it's, it's really poor for true friendships. But I mean, a lot of the true friendships are with the disappeared, Kathy and Usha. Um, you know, they're, they're, we don't hear them, so we don't hear evidence of the friendships. Yeah, the Clary and Susan, I love it when they're just having a little giggle in the dairy about, you know, they've got such a long life together and, you know, all of that history and how it comes to It's absolutely beautiful. And it, it, I listen to those and if those are conversations that I recognise from my own life. But they are so rare in the arts. You know, I, can, I can literally remember all of them because they are so rare in that as well. Yeah, Gary's made a good point in the chat. It's not just that. You don't hear women having fun in Ambridge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the female experience is very much sort of drudgery-based. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was a lot. Gary said this as well. Kirsty and Helen, they only speak in reference to men now, not really their own interrelationship. And I think, Gary, you were saying, I don't know if you want to unmute yourself and explain this some more, Gary. Mm. Are you there, Gary? Come in, Gary. Let's see if I can find him. He's on the last page. Gary, oh, yeah. he's, he's walking, he's on the stairs. Hello, darling. Sorry, sorry, I'm multitasking. I was in the dressing room putting away some washing. Um, <laughs> I am Tell us more though. about the women's stuff and the friendship stuff. I, I find myself a lot, and I've noticed it very much with Kirsty and Helen, and Helen especially for the past, I'd say since she almost first hooked up with Rob, and my brain just started to melt every time she spoke and then they seemed to carry on the same trope with Kirsty. And it was just boyfriend, boyfriend, boyfriend. And we all know people that we switch our brains off when friends go on about a new relationship. But we'll allow them about a month's grace. We certainly don't allow them just to non-stop talk about this new god they have in their life for years. And it was, it's, it's, I find it embarrassing. And I don't know, I never check whether it's male or female scriptwriters. I've got no interest in who writes the episodes. But um, I just wonder if it's a reflection on them that they live in such a strange bubble. Because I, I certainly don't know many. I've got rid of everyone in my life, male or female, that all they did was talk about the relationships. It's, yeah. it's, it's so boring. It's so tedious. And everyone knows it. So I don't know why. Also, I think. Well, you're right, because also they've become sort of a cipher for each other's self-justification as things unfold poorly, you know what I mean? So, mm -hmm. And I guess maybe it's a dramatic device, but you're right, it's, it, start, it starts to grate because, you, you know, I talk to a lot of women about a lot of subjects and then towards the end you know, regards to you and yours, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> at um, the dinner party at uh, Ryan at Kirsty and Phillips, if Helen 
and Kirsty had a functioning friendship, Helen would have gone surely either at that dinner party or before to Kirsty. Good God, what your partner is actually quite controlling. Surely she would have seen that behaviour, having been at the other side of that behaviour, and would have said something to Kirsty. And I feel no sense of solidarity from Helen to Kirsty at all at the moment. Yeah, I know, and that's particularly weird because I said I said on the group a couple of weeks ago that you know Philip has been served up this sort of overly domestic kind of you know all print you know it's basically a version of having her as his princess in the house and then he's got whatever he's got in the outside world whereas rob was seeming seeming outside the house but then was a tyrant inside the house so but as someone was saying again this week in the group you know it's all about manipulation and coercive control it's just that some is domestic and some is essentially for profit so yeah i mean jesus even on the basis of our relationship as listeners to <laughs> Helen, everybody's new partner is on yeah. watch, yeah. you know? I think, coming in on this, having taken best part of 20 years to recognise the relationship I'd be in, I, I, get, I, I don't think Helen's ready for a lot of this. She's had so many traumas. She's focusing on bringing up those children. And she hasn't... She's... She, she is probably just ignoring the whole experience just to get through each day. And maybe one day she'll tune into a radio soap and have her life replayed for her. And it will change everything. Yeah, she hasn't got a huge emotional bandwidth, has she? I'm, I'm starting on the wrong premise. <laughs> That's an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, does it make her less of a good friend to Kirsty? because she's kind of blanking out that part of her like response or her recognition of what's going on in Kirsty's life. But I think this is linked with the point about Susan, because the way she behaves, she reflects on. And that's why I think we find most of the archers and the older just so annoying, is because they so rarely close the loop of reflection. They're just broadcasting all the time. Whereas, and you know, sorry, but I mean, of course, as an archer woman, Helen is not going to be the most reflective of people. But you're right, Fiona, if she's shut that, you know, there's a trauma element that she's shut all that down. Um, but we also see Susan was so supportive of Helen and Susan was far enough beyond her own prison experience that she was in a position to be supportive. But it's maybe next you generation. Can't, you can't sort of show up for people if you haven't got it yourself. I get that. But I think it's a different gap in the, the again, it's something about, um, you know, our, our, is, is genuine agency built on emotional intelligence? That is the currency, I think, of female friendship. You know, knowing your friends kind of intimately and more or less everything that they would say or do in any given situation is the basis of friendship as we understand it in reality and that is expressed with clary and um and um susan but nowhere else yeah 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 
Because no, we have very poor examples within, <laughs> extremely poor, and I don't know where Lillian and Linda came from. Um, that was really weird because I've never, apart from their kind of headbutting relationship, which is, you know, a relationship and... Because they're laying the ground for the return of Mungo. Yes. I'm and I, you know, I just find it a bit clunky. But, you know, probably the best example of friendship we've had in the last few weeks with Linda was Kate turning up. Yeah. And I didn't yeah. even really know about Kate's friendship with Linda because I don't think I was listening when they had their kind of meaningful relationship. Yeah. Well, and this is interesting as well in terms of the emotional... Um, constipation of both the Aldridges and some of the Archers is because when Kate, you know, as, as is often said, Kate was born the day before me, so therefore I identify with her because where I am in my life and where Kate seems to be, let's face it, she always makes me look good because, you know, she's, you know, but when we were teenagers, you know, she was a very sad character. She was a very tragic character and suicide attempts and installing manipulative men in cottages because they were drug dealers, running away with the circus. You know, it wasn't, exactly, it wasn't exactly a barefoot and pregnant idyll for Kate. She kind of suffered through it as well. And Linda didn't give a shit about what Kate should have been doing. She just took her as a person. And that was... I remember, and again, because I've always had this sort of Kate vision on my head, and I think I've said before, you know, when I was having my fourth birthday party, there was a, an Archers with a fourth birthday party, and I thought, oh, there's a girl on the radio having a, having a party. And there was, you know, so it's, I've always listened out for Kate. And, yeah. and Linda yeah, did... Yeah, there's a lack of reciprocity, and that's a nice example, that, you know, that, yeah. you know, the reciprocity of Kate coming to see Linda in hospital and not caring about anything. And she didn't do the whole gulp at the door thing that other people had done. And, you know, that, that is a really important element of friendship. And the fact that they have that, even if it's so far apart that someone like me, who's only got, you know, who's not quite got enough listening to know about the first part of it, it does have a, yeah, a kind of closing the loop thing like you were talking about. I think reciprocity is a really key thing there, isn't it? Because you have reciprocity with your friends. Yeah, and that relies on a certain generosity of your own spirit, and of course, that isn't Helen. And that's back to um, what Gary says: is that you know, adults, God forbid, do edit. You know, I mean, it's harder in the village because there's not many people around. But if your needs are not served by your relationships, it's good adulting to rethink those relationships every so often. You know, but then look, so there's been a lot of chat here as well about Kirsty and Philip. And I don't think Kirsty is getting her needs met by Philip in terms of like an emotional sense. But I get she's stepped over a, a tipping point now, hasn't she, where she's got to believe in this relationship. I think she went into it for security. And it was a knee-jerk reaction against Tom. I can totally understand that in a one sense. But I think she's gone past a point now where she realises, I think, consciously, that she's actually kind of colluding with herself on Philip. I think that, but that's why, that's the, again, why it's quite shrill between them, because it's just a series of self-justifications. Yeah. And it's like they're explaining their rationale, rather than, I don't know. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, it's coming up to half past 12. Most of you have sat in extremely good order for the best part of two and a half hours. So, 
Thank you so much for being with us again. Um, oh, Louise having the final word. Thinking about it, it's a pretty tough call to tell your friend that her boyfriend is a dick. <laughs> I don't think I'd struggle, to be fair. I don't think I'd struggle, but you know, voila. Um, I've, I've got a few, I mean, I've got to say thank you today for giving me uh, laughter to the point of tears and the innuendos, flashy catchment, uh, <laughs> twining onions and injecting marrow. I was, I was, seriously, I had tears coming down my face on that one. It was absolutely brilliant. Claire Asprey, I want to talk to you about doing a map, paper and place names paper at the next conference. I want you to love that. Thank you very much. Um, and just the last thing, we've had quite a few people want to join the Facebook group from recommendations for people who are in the Facebook group. If you do recommend a friend to join or if you're in this chat and you're not a member but want to join, please, 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 can you answer all the questions? It's the only way that we can try and keep our group as lovely as it is. But you know, There are, believe it or not, bots that want to join academic archers. Um, and <laughs> But it's just a way that we know that you're lovely and human and one of us. So just that from a bit of house admin for me. I will, the link for the next, week, next week's um, Zoom tickets is up online now. Because this chat is so long, I think, along, I think it's going to take me about three hours to render all of this audio. But the podcast will be up too and I'll post out the links for it as well. Thank you very much everybody. Thank you so much. Bye. 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 Bye.